Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. At the turn of the 6th century BC, a man called Thales of Miletus did something truly extraordinary. He argued that instead of relying on myths and legends, the best way to understand the world was through theories and hypotheses drawn from real-world experiments, something we would call science. Where Thales led, other Greeks followed. For centuries they made spectacular advances in understanding their world, inventing geometry, astronomy, physics and chemistry. And then came darkness. With the end of the classical age, the world fell back into ignorance and superstition. People live like dogs in the gutter. Give a medieval churchman a science kit and he'd be roasting on the bonfire before you knew it. So, Tom Holland, you can't surely disagree with such a nuanced <laughs> account of the history of science, can you? Uh, Dominic, I feel like walking off this podcast right now. <laughs> that is... Right. I've never heard such nonsense. <laughs> you know, the, the best thing about it is that yesterday you sent me an introduction that you had written yourself for me yes. to use, quoting from one of your own essays. No, and I just Dominion. refused to use it. It's from, oh, is it from Dominion. Yeah, it's a fantastic oh. passage. And I just refused to use it on principle. I know you did. It's just so, against the spirit of the podcast. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> Promoting promote our books is against the spirit of the well, podcast. No. Promoting your books is against my spirit of my podcast. So already, um, you've, so I thought that, I, you know, I thought that that opening thing was the most ludicrous thing you could possibly have said. Right. Now you well, obviously, I was setting, I was setting, I know, you know. yes, I know, I know. So, okay, so, so today's topic is, um, we're titling it the medieval science. Um, and we need a top historian. We always need medieval a science. Um, and you, you in your introduction were kind of casting the Middle Ages as a, as a dark age. Obscurantism. Which, yes, obscurantism. Um, we need someone who's written a book called The Light Ages. We do. About how the Middle Ages was far from being a period of, of uh, ignorance and superstition, was um, kind of opened up all kinds of astonishing ways of seeing the world that, that, that we uh, still um, benefit from today. And that person is Seb Falk author of The Light Ages, joining us from Cambridge, Seb, are you? That's right, yeah. Hi, thanks. Seb. Thanks for so, joining us. So thanks, thanks so much, much. For, for, for coming on the, on the show. And as I said, we're talking about medieval science. And as you kind of tease out in your fabulous book, which I strongly recommend to anyone who, who, who's interested in this subject, and even if you're not, you'll find it incredibly interesting, um, you, you, you kind of say that both the words medieval and science are, are kind of tricky that they imply slight degrees of anachronism. Um, could we just look at the word medieval first? Because it, it does still have a kind of slightly pejorative sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, medieval today is often used as a kind of synonym for backward or barbaric. You know, we talk about those medieval Taliban or, um, you know, medieval lack of Wi-Fi in my favourite cafe. Um and and things that we do like, if they happen to happen uh, between 
let's say the year 1000 and the year 1500, we call them something else. We call them Renaissance or, or whatever it might be. Um, but historically, the word medieval is already a bit of a way of dismissing the period, right? Because it means the bit in the middle, the bit that's less interesting. And that comes from the Renaissance, when they were trying to cast themselves as the heirs to ancient Greece and Rome. And they said that everything that had happened since the fall of Rome had been just an uninteresting bit in the middle. So that history of medieval as being uninteresting and not worthy of consideration goes way back. But I'm trying to rehabilitate it. We, as you do brilliantly. And, and that, that sense of, of the Middle Ages as something uh, backward obviously continues into the present. So we have a question from Tim O'Neill on whose podcast I know you have appeared. Indeed, I think you've appeared on almost every podcast. Um, and he, Tim, Tim who, who runs a, a website called, what is it, History for Atheists. And his kind of perspective is that atheists are as likely to believe nonsensical things about history as Christians or Muslims or whoever. And Tim asks, why is a period which gave us the optics that led to eyeglasses, the mechanics of complex astronomical clocks, logarithmic expression, the mean speed theorem and successful experiments in man flight depicted as a science free dark age? And is it all the fault of people in the Renaissance saying that everything should be owed to the Renaissance? Or is it, uh, does it go deeper than that? Slightly. It's also the fault of Protestants after the Reformation and sort of into the Enlightenment casting Catholics as superstitious and backward and witch-burning. Um, actually, a lot of the stereotypes that are associated with the Middle Ages, like the burning of witches, um, are really more properly associated with the early modern period, um, or at least the beginning of the early modern period. So, uh, yeah, there's a bit of a bit of kind of Edward Gibbon talking about how uh, people uh, in in the Dark Ages uh, were just following superstition, and some of that is a way of beating up the Catholics, essentially. And so, if we then also look at the word science, sci- I mean science in the sense that we use it today. That's quite late, isn't it? I mean, basically, it's kind of the word scientist we only get in the 19th century. Mid 19th century in, in Oxford, the word science is kind of being used to describe the works of Aristotle or Greek philosophy or a whole range of things. So the idea that of science that we have now, I mean, where does that come from? And what, to what extent does it kind of you, our use of it kind of get in the way of our understanding what people in the Middle Ages are doing? Yeah, that's that's absolutely uh, part of the problem that that. The idea of a kind of modern science that's practiced by professionals in purpose-designed spaces with, you know, very specific and expensive equipment is a modern concept. Uh, But that doesn't mean that people weren't kind of looking around themselves and wondering about the universe, but they might have been doing it in different ways and for different reasons. And I think part of the problem is that uh, we assume that... uh, There's only one way of doing science. There's only one reason to do science. Um, But even if you actually look at modern science today, uh, there are different motivations. Are you trying to understand the universe uh, in a disinterested way, purely uh, to to for the pleasure of finding things out, or are you trying to improve people's lives? And those are two potentially uh, conflicting motivations for doing science. And in the Middle Ages, uh, a lot of the motivations for doing science or for for trying to understand the universe are for things that turn out to be somewhat misguided, perhaps, or that that many people today would say are wrong, trying to understand God's universe from the point of view of religious people. Uh, Many atheists today would say is 
completely pointless or trying to understand the motions of the planets in order to be able to uh, provide an astrological cure for somebody's disease again would be thought to be slightly misguided uh, but that doesn't mean that underneath those uh, those those uh, misguided motivations or, or um, overlaying uh, those false premises isn't some really interesting methodology some really interesting science uh, and some some really fantastic ideas and measurements and instruments so um let's go back to the beginning of the period <laughs> so somebody asked a question online humphrey clark he asked a question about dan jones's new history of the middle ages and, and in which dan jones talks about um the late roman empire and its byzantine successor kind of blocking knowledge by by sort of shutting off classical learning um, do you think that's that's true? Was there is there a period at the end of the Roman Empire in the beginning of what we'd call the Middle Ages when people deliberate almost deliberately turn their backs on what we would now call the scientific learning of the classical era, or is that or, or does that learning sort of continue unbroken, as it were? I mean, there are cases of um, church fathers saying, you know, you don't need to worry about this stuff. There's a very famous quotation which is, I think, often misinterpreted by Tertullian, saying, you know, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? In other words, um, and I'm sure Tom would, would weigh in on this. Um, I'm, I'm, don't, don't weigh I'm in. I'm itching. I'm itching too, uh, but I'm going to restrain but, myself. Um, but I think there's equally church fathers like St. Augustine, who says, uh, you know, knowledge, pagan knowledge, is like the Egyptian gold that the Israelites uh, stole out of Egypt, except it wasn't stealing uh, because they were putting it to better use. And so pagan knowledge, in the same way, could be put to better use by Christians. So, uh, you know, there's always arguments and differences of opinion. Uh, if there was um, a period of kind of intellectual stagnation, um, it was, I would say, more structural. It was about economic decline that uh, yeah. falls, the kind of, uh, that, that follows the um, decline of the Roman Empire, and and therefore networks of communication, systems of knowledge production were all um, destroyed and, and uh, decaying. And so it was harder for information to be shared. But let's not forget that the Roman Empire continues in Byzantium, uh, and knowledge uh, continues to be spread and communicated, and then of course, translated from Greek into Syriac and from Syriac into Arabic. Um, and, um, you know, the centers of knowledge are perhaps passed to uh, the Islamic world. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't think there's ever really a period when you can say that people were uninterested in knowing stuff about the world. People's motivations change, and people's ability to to protect and preserve and communicate and build on uh, ancient knowledge uh, had its peaks and troughs. Um, but but I think to to cast the whole period as as a period in which people just didn't want to know anything uh, is a modern stereotype, uh, basically based on kind of our own prejudices about the past because they don't look like us and they don't think like us. And, and Seb, isn't it also, I mean, just to go back to this thing about how science is a recent coinage, really. And, and, and basically what science comes to mean in the 19th century is what is, is something that's not religion. And likewise, religion comes to mean something that's, that's not science. And the two are, are kind of separated out. But before that, it was always accepted that the attempt to understand the universe and to fathom its workings and to explain it in ways that perhaps today we would cast as science. I mean, that was always interfused with, with theology or with metaphysics. So Greek philosophers, I mean, you know, they believed by our lights all kinds of mad things. And so the idea that there was, you know, a box that, that the ancient Greeks did science and then the Christians came in and stopped it because they did religion. I mean, it's, it's a very, very seductive idea. And it's one that, you know, Carl Sagan famously kind of basically promoted but it is i mean that is itself a myth everybody right the way up to 
the 19th century are assuming that the world is expressive of metaphysical or indeed theological truths. I mean, wouldn't you think? Yeah, broadly speaking, I think it's, people often assume that the ancient Greeks were atheists, which is clearly nonsense. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's a there's a huge amount kind of going on behind the scenes there. Uh, but no, I, I agree with you that I think the, tr- the trouble is that we assume that the kinds of questions that people are asking about nature have, have remained unchanged. And, and that's simply not the case. Uh, and that uh, people who wanted to understand the world um, could blend their religious beliefs with their observations of nature in trying to explain how things worked. Let me pick up on that question, Seb. So we had a question from Owen Williams about the church, and he says, um, to what extent was the medieval church in favour of scientific research? I mean, I guess what you might say, I'm anticipating your answer, is that the medieval church maybe doesn't have a blanket position, but also there's no the idea of scientific research being separate from things that churchmen do is a modern, is a kind of anachronism. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the, the sciences, as Tom already said, um, can it can mean a whole bunch of things because the word scientia in Latin means knowledge uh, and any kind of system of knowledge can be a science. So astronomy can be a science, music can be a science, theology can be a science. Uh, and so to... to even even the statement that the church is anti-science doesn't really make any sense. You know, how can the church be anti-knowledge? There's, there's different forms of knowledge. Uh, of course, institutions often try and preserve their power. So if... Um, the, if if the church and even talking about the church as a kind of monolithic body is is problematic because of course the church has uh, different networks and different uh, abilities to to control um, people's behaviour in different places. Yeah, well, Seb, you you've talked about um, how there are different institutions in the church, and so obviously one of them is the, the institution of monasticism. And in your book, the uh, the Light Ages, you focus on the great um, Benedictine monastery at Saint Albans, and you focus on one particular uh, monk there who well, well tell us about him because because he's he's a kind of shadowy figure who essentially you kind of almost give form to but tell us something about his life and what he is able to do because i think that would give listeners a sense of of exactly what we're talking about when we talk about medieval science yeah, so this man's name is John of Westwick, or John Westwick. Uh, Westwick was a little hamlet just to the west of St Albans, uh, and he was born probably sometime in the 1350s, but we can't be entirely sure. And the point about him is not that he's massively important in the history of science. In fact, the reason I chose him was to get away from this idea that science is produced by great men, uh, plucking ideas out of thin air and uh, bestowing them on a grateful public. Uh, Science is the work of countless people, many of whom we've never heard of and will never hear of, um, and it is done through their practices. So what I wanted to show was what was it that John Westwick was doing when he was doing science and how is he kind of representative of the medieval way of doing science and of thinking about nature. Um, and so he's in many ways an ordinary monk, but in some ways uh, unusual and extraordinary, uh, particularly in the fact that he'd never, uh, he never he didn't stay in one monastery for his whole career. He travelled around quite a lot. Uh, he, he went from the wealthy monastery of St Albans up to their daughter house at Tynemouth on the cliffs overlooking the North Sea, uh, which was a, 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 sometimes an exile or an outpost uh, for monks from from St Albans, they were sent there either to prove themselves in this inhospitable environment, or perhaps as punishment uh, if they got into trouble in St Albans, which they did quite a lot. So uh, Dan Jackson it, wouldn't like to hear that. No, <laughs> no, he, uh, Jonathan Wilson, they wouldn't 
the idea that you exile to the northeast. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have some fascinating <laughs> letters back from monks at Tymouth, back to St Albans, saying, "Don't come up here. The weather is awful. You just get <laughs> foam from the North Sea and these shrieking gulls, and all there is to eat is fish, and it's just." awful and anyone who's been to the northeast can attest that this is all completely true (laughs) (laughs) well one thing we can say about john westwick because we don't know for sure whether he was sent there as uh as kind of a test uh as a promising young monk or as a punishment but he didn't stay very long uh which is one reason why i think it might have been a punishment because he was clearly keen to leave and he left by going on crusade uh he went uh he joined up uh, the 1383 bishop's crusade uh which didn't go to the holy land but to flanders it was kind of a, a an episode in the hundred years war where the bishop of norwich <laughs> said we've got a problem with a trade embargo here and the english wool trade is just completely messed up so it's kind of brexit yeah it's kind of brexit crusade yeah or, exactly. the Phanta, or the Phantom so kind of, Menace. That's about a trade embargo. Uh, but it was it was about <laughs> a successful. Lord Frost would do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would Lord Frost do? Lord, would Lord Frost besiege a friendly city? That that's the question. Almost certainly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that's what they did in 1383. Uh, they besieged the city of Ypres and they all got dysentery and the army had to um, retreat in ignominy, uh, giving up the, the gains they had made. And uh, the Bishop of Norwich, who led the crusade, was impeached uh, before Parliament. Uh, so John Westwick was on this. And then when he turns up a little bit later in the early 1390s in London, where he was drawing up plans for this very complex astronomical instrument called an equatorium, which is a sort of device for computing the positions of the planets. So it's for astronomy and astrology. Um, And so he's got a bunch of interests. He spends a lot of his time, as monks do, uh, and as monks did, uh, copying and editing and glossing and commenting and translating and these are the kind of basic scholarly activities of the middle ages which today we think are a little bit arid and a little bit lacking in creativity but the period of the middle ages was was very much one in which knowledge was gained by building on the achievements of your forebears and your predecessors so standing on the shoulders of giants isn't standing on the shoulders says. of giants as newton says but newton was quoting of course a, a medieval proverb in in that respect uh, newton himself of course said that the purpose of natural philosophy was to discourse of god uh, so so we shouldn't make him the standard bearer for some atheistic science either so, so what exactly is it that the john westwick is is doing i mean what is the focus of his interest this kind of well you you talk i mean you, you kind of said it was computer almost yeah i mean a computer in the very literal sense that a computer takes information that you put into it from some source it processes it in some way and it spits out new information i mean that's literally i suppose what a computer does um and this one takes the basic parameters and components of the motions of the planets uh and uh it uh you put them in and you turn a little dial and you pull some strings and then you read on the rim of this of this brass and wooden disc uh the positions in longitude and celestial longitude of the planets along the ecliptic which is the uh, the zodiac where the sun travels uh, against the background of stars throughout the year so you can find the positions of the planets and by doing so you can draw up a horoscope and again Astrology seems to us to be quite superstitious uh, and and nonsense. Uh, But in the Middle Ages, it was a very serious science. And it was based on the principle that if the sun heats up the earth, uh, you know, creates the seasons and the moon pulls the tides, then why shouldn't the other planets also affect things down here on earth? And humans as a microcosm of the of the macrocosm, humans as a sort of um, mini version of the universe uh, contained uh, containing elements as the universe contains elements reflect the makeup of the universe 
universe. So we're always in some sense reflecting what's around us. And the weather as well is predictable uh, if you understand what's happening up there in the heavens. So knowledge of astrology was was profound and important, but also astronomy was really the first mathematical science, the first truly precise science. So to us, it really does look quite scientific because they're devising instruments, instruments like astrolabes, uh, to uh, find the positions of things and to measure very precisely. So can I pick up on the the, the device, the, the machine, as it were? How common... I mean, we don't think of people, because we so many of us are kind of slaves to the stereotype, I suppose. We don't think of monks in the Middle Ages inventing machines or working with machines. But how common was this? I mean, did people... Was this an age of invention and of kind of tinkering with contraptions and things? Or is that does that come later in the early modern period more generally? Tinkering is definitely the word. It's it's an age of kind of innovation, of 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 improvement, of incremental improvement. And they were really very keen on on devices. They were keen on gadgets. And we see this is the period when we see the first mechanical clocks. Um uh, you know, at first quite basic mechanical clocks and then later more complex mechanical clocks. And that's happening in the monasteries as well because timekeeping was essential to the monastic day. You needed to know when well, to so, pray. So if you say in, in your book, the mechanical clock was surely the most significant invention of the Middle Ages. Uh, and and yeah. then shockingly, you neglect to mention the clock in Salisbury Cathedral. Which... <laughs> well, I feel like um, the Sergei Skripal poisoners have already done an excellent job on publicising that one. Um, but there are other really important medieval clocks. The trouble is actually with medieval clocks is that most of them don't survive because medieval people were really good at recycling. Um, but basically, without timekeeping, without precise timekeeping, we don't have GPS. Uh, we don't have... Um, you know, the the kind of online delivery slots that we're all slaves to these days um, and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, we couldn't have scheduled this podcast without the innovations of the Middle Ages. Uh, so, you know, I suppose it, 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 what you see in the Middle Ages is not the kind of precise um, timekeeping that atomic clocks and satellites and all the rest of it. But what you do see is this attention uh, to detail and this attention to precision. Uh, people in the Middle Ages were obsessed with calculating things to levels of detail that were completely unobservable. You know, you get them them computing the positions of the planets to, to you know, billionths of, of degrees, which they could never have observed in the sky. But the process of, of computation, of calculation, was something that, that they, they did in a, an extremely painstaking way. But just, just on clocks... Is this developed by uh, by monks specifically because they need it to keep track of the the hours for their services or whatever? Is is that is that the kind of mo- one of the motivations? That's a great question, um, and it's a uh, it's one that historians keep arguing about. Uh, so there is this practical motivation, um, but if you look at the clocks that they make, they make them well beyond that capability. Um, and so there is also a sense that when they're making a clock, they are reproducing the cosmos. Um, and they are doing so in order to kind of understand the mind of the creator. We have that sort of metaphor of the of the clockwork universe that, that becomes better known later. Um, but even at the time, um, in, in the, the most uh, popular medieval scientific textbook the sphere of john of sacrobosco starts off by describing the machine of the world so the world is is already seen at this point as a machine mm-hmm. uh, and if the world is a machine then uh in order to uh and and, and they say 
that uh, if you can understand the mind of of a craftsman by looking at the machine that he makes and therefore you can understand the mind of god by looking at uh, creation so if you can sort of reproduce the cosmos in a box then you can go some way towards understanding the component parts of it and thereby understanding god so there is a kind of uh theological motivation for this plus of course there's a way of it's a way of demonstrating your power and your control and this is where clocks pass quite quickly uh, from their invention around the end of the 13th century um by the 15th century, we're seeing clocks in town halls uh, and in civic buildings, uh, non-religious buildings, where they become a kind of way for uh, local authorities to show their power, to show their control. You know, you put a, a clock on your yeah. town hall in Strasbourg or Berlin. And where, where are the clocks invented? Is it Norwich? Uh, so, so, as I say, we don't have the earliest surviving clocks because... Uh, they were all melted down or recycled or destroyed or replaced. Uh, but we have uh, early records of clocks in the 1270s and 80s in many of the cathedrals and abbeys around England. But but they were probably also um, uh, in, in other parts of Europe as well. And it's tricky because, of course, there were water clocks, there were sundials, there were other forms of timekeeping technology. And since we only have written records... Um, when they say clock, we don't know exactly whether it's a mechanical clock or a water clock or something else. Uh, and the records are, are pretty partial. So, for example, we only know that there was a water clock in Bury St Edmunds Abbey in 1198 because they used the water from the water clock to put out a fire. So if there hadn't <laughs> been a fire... <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it was the nearest source of water. So uh, so if there hadn't been a fire in Bury St Edmunds, then we wouldn't even know they had a water clock there. Um, so, yeah, Norwich is, is one place where we know that they had a clock because we have the accounts uh, for when the clock was replaced um and uh and uh in st albans they had really the world's first complex mechanical clock uh, which was designed by the abbot richard of wallingford in the late 1320s early 1330s and that did much more than tell the time that that showed you the tides and it maybe even showed you the planets and it computed wow. eclipses Amazing. Uh, so that really is a model of the universe let's take a break tom yeah let's take a break you should go and think about the clock in salisbury i'm going to reproduce the cosmos in a box and um, and then we'll come back in, and I've got a very good question to come back in with. So stay tuned. Have you? Yes. All right. Very exciting. See you back in a minute. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest. With BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash rest is history. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, Tom Holland has indeed been thinking about the clock in Salisbury, and I have indeed made the cosmos in a box, which is testimony to my power. Now, Seb Falk is with us, and he's talking about medieval science. And before the break, we were talking about clocks and, and tinkering and the extent to which people you know, were doing, I suppose, what we would very loosely now call science. My question, Seb, is about progress. So obviously so much of our sense of a scientific narrative is based on the idea of progress, of standing on the shoulders of giants, which we alluded to before, and building something bigger and bigger every time. So you have Newton, and then you have his successors, and so on and so on. You get to Einstein. That's the story. You know, it is a story. Did they have a sense of something like that? Do they have any sense of there being a, a, a progressive narrative towards greater enlightenment, as it were? The, the short answer is no, because... Uh According to the Christian story, everything was decline after the Garden of Eden, basically. And so uh, if you asked a Christian scholar, they would say that what they were trying to do was to preserve uh, ancient knowledge and to build on it and to um, try and uh, redefine it and to try and understand it. Uh, but the sense that they had a lot of the time was that they would never be able to reclaim the perfect wisdom of the Garden of Eden. So um, in that story of the fall, there is a sort of complexity of, uh, well, we, we couldn't be where we are without it. And yet um, we will never be able to sort of uh, go back to to that uh, that that perfect time. So uh, they didn't have a sense that that they were making perfect progress, but that didn't mean that in practical terms they couldn't uh, learn things and they couldn't uh, discover new things and they couldn't find out uh, what other people knew. Yes. Uh, but the part of the problem with progress also is that. Um, it depends on what you define as progress and what counts as progress. So uh, they might have thought about progress in moral terms and, uh, you know, how can we uh, become better people and how can we know God better? Uh, and that was something that, that they could uh, perhaps uh, achieve in their own minds. Um, so I think part of the problem is that we assume that we all, all agree on what progress is um, and that uh, humanity must uh, make some sort of linear progression and, and that that isn't the case in history in the sense of well sometimes knowledge has gone backwards and also uh, we haven't always agreed on what counts as progress to begin with but we we define progress don't we very much as mastery over nature you know we can transcend the limits of the natural world but they presumably didn't have a sense of that in the same way well, certainly their nature was one in which God intervened on a daily basis. Um, and so there were limitations to what humans could know and what humans could do. Um, and I think it's very important, I suppose, uh, to emphasize that they that they wanted to be modest uh, about about nature in the sense of, well, uh, it, in some sense, it wasn't really uh, for humans uh, to uh try and be gods essentially to set themselves up as gods uh, but they have yes. a spark of the divine reason don't they the lux hominum the, the... yeah so uh, it is a tension it is a tension i think one of the things that we have to get away from is this idea that medieval people agreed about everything and <laughs> yeah. and, and constantly behaved in a consistent way uh, neither of those things are true so they can say we have to be modest in our um ambitions to understand god because we could never understand god and it would be blasphemous even to think that we could um yet 
appearing in all of their actions that they spent all of their time trying to understand god and trying to understand god through nature which was you know a very clear principle of, of something that, that could be done so you know there are contradictions there and so um, also do you think i mean do you think the the, the the christian idea of god is that he's all powerful that he's created everything so there is the sense of the universe as a kind of a, a coherent entity that perhaps in in other ways of understanding the cosmos you don't necessarily get um and on top of that the Christianity has this idea that God subjects himself to covenants. So he, he has a covenant with Moses. You know, he, he kind of signs up to that. And w- whatever exactly it is, the crucifixion, you know, what's going on there, there is a sense that in some way there's some kind of agreement that's being drawn up. So do you think that that implies that both that, that God is all powerful, but that he is happy to construct laws that perhaps humans can fathom? And that therefore there's there's a kind of theological framework for what we would now see as, you know, the, the attempt to work out laws that underpin the running of the universe. Yeah, that's that's right. And uh, there is even a tension there, though, right, because um, the the physicists you know followers of, of aristotle try to understand the universe in the, in the terms in which aristotle put it and uh try and explain kind of what is and isn't possible according to the laws of physics and that to us makes a lot of sense but if you talk about the laws of physics then the theologians might get a little bit yeah tense uh, and antsy about constraining the power of god so you get these arguments in the 13th century about whether it's possible to have a vacuum in nature and the the consensus was that a vacuum couldn't exist uh, but the theologians say well you can't stop god making a vacuum um, (laughs) because that's just constraining the power of god so it's not that god has made a vacuum or that god is going to make a vacuum but that if god feels like making a vacuum it's a strange thing to do with your day right i mean you know (laughs) he's gone (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, I he do. moves in I, mysterious ways. Really but, but Seb, you mentioned so you mentioned Aristotle, and on the I mean, kind of on the idea of progress. I, I guess one of the ways in which people in in medieval Europe do feel a sense of progress is actually that they're kind of fathoming this ancient wisdom that you talked about, because because you know they they live in a world where Aristotle, for much of the early Middle Ages, is not really known, and then. Be- through Byzantium, through the uh, Islamic um, Spain, they get the opportunity to, to discover Aristotle. And you're, you're brilliant in your book at talking about what a kind of bombshell effect this is. So can you just try and explain why Aristotle kind of has this impact? Because, it, because I, you know, I mean, he's not, he's not a Christian. He's a, he's a Greek philosopher. What, it, what is the way that he kind of impacts on, on the Christian world in medieval Europe? So Aristotle was the ultimate polymath. I mean, he he observed animals, so he would creep up on sea urchins to see if they behaved differently when they thought they were being watched from from when they uh, didn't think they were. Uh, and he uh, understood the fundamental laws of physics and uh, and tried to bring time and motion together in in a single law. And so for medieval people, uh, the scale of his ambition was tremendously daunting. But his texts were very hard to get into because not only were they not really written to be read, they were really notes from from lectures uh, but also they'd been translated through syriac and arabic uh, and often castilian spanish uh, and so they were extremely hard to understand so medieval people spent a huge amount of time just trying to get their heads around the works of aristotle but to them there was a kind of a sense that there was hidden knowledge here and there was a kind of deeper level of explanation than they'd ever encountered before and part of the problem is is that aristotle says that that everything has always existed and um, so there's no kind of genesis. Right. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty firm 
statement that he makes that is very hard for Christians to get around. Uh, and simply, uh, that's that's one that they can dismiss because, you know, yes, Aristotle says the universe is eternal, but that clearly conflicts with uh, the uh, principle of biblical creation. Uh, and so Christians simply have to say, no, Aristotle is wrong about that. Uh, so they're not, you know, they're not averse to saying that Aristotle is wrong about something. I think sometimes there's a cliche about the Middle Ages that the scholastics are slaves to Aristotle and just spend all of their time reading Aristotle and studying Aristotle and never go anywhere beyond Aristotle, which of course it is possible to do. Um, but that's not the case because they, they do point out places in, in which he is, according to them, clearly mistaken. Uh, but in general, they spend a lot of time working through his ideas and, and, and understanding the implications of him. And famously, he's he's called the philosopher because, you know, he is the ultimate authority in that sense to them. Seb, you mentioned um, translations from Arabic and so on. Uh, and when you were talking about Aristotle and the transmission of Aristotle, and we had a question about this from Diogo Milgado, who I have to say has been on fire in recent weeks with this question. <laughs> he really is, isn't he? Um, singing. He says, shouldn't we be talking about medieval Islamic science? Because that's where the most advanced research was conducted at the time. Cordoba and Baghdad were so much a- more ahead than anywhere else, right? Well, is that right? And and should we be talking about medieval Islamic science rather than Christians necessarily? Yeah, well, well yes, it's undoubtedly the case uh, that in the High Middle Ages, the Islamic world was a centre for science. And and that's basically because um, science proceeds ultimately through processes of communication. And the Islamic world it was, in a sense, at the centre of the civilised world. So they took ideas from ancient Greece and translated them into Arabic. Uh, they took ideas from India. And you get uh, scholars from Central Asia coming to Baghdad, the centre of the Abbasid Caliphate in the 8th and 9th centuries, uh, translating all these ideas, studying them, copying huge numbers of books and uh, and developing these ideas. And you know, the the Islamic world gives us scholars like Al-Kindi, uh, Avicenna, um, Ibn al-Haytham, some names that are, are famous and other names that, that deserve to be better known. Uh, so yes, absolutely, uh, the Islamic world was, was at the centre of things. I mean, I, amazing detail from your, your book about John of Westwick, who begin, I think, have I got this right, that he begins his text in the name of God, Pitus and Merciful, which is obviously the, the, the Bismillah, the, the, the Islamic formula referring to God, that, that you've got that echo coming all the way through, presumably, I guess, through through Spain up into, into St. Albans. And that's kind of an amazing tribute to how what an international project th- this is. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, there are many words, many modern scientific words that go back to Arabic and Arabic culture. Algorithm famously comes from Al-Khwarizmi, uh, the, the uh, man who brought uh, the uh, Hindu Arabic numerals uh, from India to, to the Arabic speaking world. Um, and, you know, things like algebra and so on. So so Arabic culture is infused in our science even today. Uh, what's interesting about that quotation from John Westwick is uh, that early readers of that manuscript thought that this was um, evidence that he was translating uh, an original Arabic text. And it's possible possible that's true. But I suspect it's actually because it's a kind of literary flourish. He thinks scientific texts start with Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, that's how yes, they begin. that's just what you do. Uh, uh, so, so I'm going to do the same. Uh, and he does it in Middle English, uh, which and, is unusual. And uh, astrolabes, do they come to the medieval world, to, to the, the, the European world f- through Spain as well? Uh, yes, well, yes. Um, so the principles of the astrolabe were, so were just, laid down what, in ancient What is Greece. an astrolabe? That's, that's, it's a kind of, it's a, a, it shows you the workings of the universe. 
Basically. Uh, I mean, the word means kind of star finder. Um, I've got one here. I shall wave it at my microphone so listeners can at least <laughs> hear excellent. it, even if they and can't see it. Good sound podcasting. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a brass disc. It fits in the palm of your hand. It's multifunctional. Uh, so in some senses, it's like a medieval smartphone in that it looks cool. Um, you can make people jealous with it, but you can also do a bunch of really interesting things with it, uh, such as tell the time, work out the height of, work out so, the height of a building. So when Abelard and, and Eloise call their, their son uh, Astrolabe, it's kind of like calling it iPhone. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, it's not nothing that Elon Musk couldn't beat. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a sort of multifunctional device. And, and basically, it's anything. It's a model of the universe. So you can tell the time with it. You can work out when a certain star is going to rise or you can work out which way is north. All of these sorts of things with an astrolabe. And it's a, a piece of design. It's a, it's a kind of beautiful object and a status symbol. Um so those the, the principles of, of projection, essentially putting the spherical universe onto a flat disk, are laid out by Ptolemy, the ancient Greek astronomer in Alexandria in the second century AD. Um, but uh, we don't know for sure whether he ever made one. And then we get a late uh, ancient Greek uh, texts from people like Theon of Alexandria um, uh, later on, uh, saying, you know, this is this is how you make an astrolabe in practice. Uh, but the, the earliest astrolabes that we have um, are from the Islamic world. And as you say, they come into medieval Europe uh, through uh, Muslim Spain, where they are kind of refined and, and adapted and, and made to suit Christian purposes. So that the designs uh, are adapted and and, um, uh, and, and, and shifted, but uh, the basic, basic principles um, are unchanged. Coming to an end um, and kind of drawing on that, that sense of a, a vast hinterland of knowledge that people in Europe are drawing on, but also the, the way in which perhaps the medieval becomes the early modern. Could we just look at Copernicus, who in your book you cast as someone who is drawing on what a kind of Central Asian tradition of thinking about the, the earth as being at the centre uh, sorry, the sun being at the centre of the universe and the earth going round the sun. And is, 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 and is that sense, I mean, is that a radical break with what's gone before or is it an expression of continuity, do you think? I'd say it's probably more an expression of continuity. Certainly Copernicus is concerned to present it in those terms. Uh, in, in, his, in the preface that he writes as a, as a form of a letter to the Pope. So he's in the uh, 16th century, isn't he? And, and, and he's drawing on, on stuff from Central Asia. I mean, is, yes. have I got that right? I mean, well, you, you, yes and no. So... Uh, the the ideas that the Earth might be um, going around the Sun rather than the reverse um, is is found in uh, ancient European sources. is found in um, Roman and, and, and Greek sources. It's suggested, uh, and Copernicus goes back to those, a true Renaissance man, that he's going back to the classical sources to try to uh, find other people who have thought what he thinks in the past as a kind of support for his assumptions. So in that sense, he's a true medieval. He's trying to look for authorities to back up his ideas. Um, the geometry that he uses to make it work, that comes from the Islamic world. That comes from Central Asia. Um, and so he draws on a, a bunch of um, scholars, most notably Atusi, uh, who was Persian in the in the 14th century. Oh, Ali Ansari um, would be thrilled to hear that. It's, it's, uh, it's all Persian. Well, there's there's a whole bunch of them, Al Urdia, Shirazi, or you know, from 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 across the Islamic world, um, and it, it's 
argued still by historians how much Copernicus depends on them versus independently discovering these geometrical models. But he basically has to make it work geometrically. He starts with this idea where he thinks that actually it's the sun that's at the centre of the universe, not the earth. Uh, He sticks to the idea of perfect circles, so he can't make it work because uh, the universe doesn't operate in perfect circles. But Copernicus... uh, maintains this uh, basic principle that motion in the heavens should be in in perfect circles and so he ends up with a system that is basically just as complicated as the one that he started with but and replaces isn't it i mean it's, it's it's not just as complicated but it's also as unprovable yeah and there are clear objections to copernicus's theories uh, most obviously the fact that if we're moving through the universe at thousands of miles an hour why do we not feel the wind rushing past our ears um, and mm. if uh, we are moving thousands of miles in the course of a year uh, why do we uh, not observe any parallax in the stars uh, and those questions weren't resolved um, for a long time after Copernicus was was writing in the early 16th century uh, so there were objections to him at the time those objections were voiced you know, very clearly by scholars who were, you know, equally, if not more eminent than him. Um, and other models were proposed, most notably uh, that of um, Tycho Brahe in, in Denmark, who proposed uh, that essentially all the planets went around the sun, uh, except the Earth. Uh, the sun goes around the Earth. So that also, uh, in fact, that explains the phenomena that we observe better than Copernicus's model. So what we see in the 16th century is this constant argument this back and forth and that is the the basis of science really it's the argument not this idea of you know some great person coming up with the right answer and everybody else immediately falls into line seb is this the point where medieval science as it were is coming to an end and we're moving into some new phase so obviously you know our sense of time is much as we like to complicate it we do divide it into kind of blocks is this the sort of 15th century copernicus and then getting into the the sort of early modern period is that a a definite shift as you see it in our scientific history well there definitely is a change that takes place but it's very gradual and and most people would sort of put it in the 17th century sometime between galileo and kepler and uh the end of newton's career at the beginning of the 18th century um what we see in Copernicus is is definitely a shift because he's taking advantage of the new medium of printing uh to exchange ideas uh and um but 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 he also you know as i already said uh, in in his kind of looking back to earlier authorities uh is is a, a real renaissance man and and his uh de revolutionibus his his book in which he presents his heliocentric theory is modeled very closely on ptolemy's almagest so uh he is uh self-consciously presenting himself in some sense as medieval um but that's a sensible way to promote your ideas really because if you want people to you know, take something controversial and and understand it. You have to present it in terms that they are going to accept. Um, what we see later is is a, a whole shift in in ideas, and and part of that is a kind of valorization of the new and original, um, which some people have associated with uh, the European discovery of what they call the new world um, as as a kind of way of proving that actually something new we can know something new that the ancients didn't know about. Um, but also there's a kind of increase in experimentation, an increase in uh, inductive knowledge, uh, observing nature and not worrying too much about whether your observations were the same as what somebody else might observe, which was always a stumbling block in the Middle Ages, this idea that our senses were fallible and therefore we couldn't rely too much on our own observations. But you could say, couldn't you, that you know, this process of experimentation, that some of the areas that we now regard as, as absolutely not science, so astrology or alchemy or whatever, that that is, you know, testing 
to find out whether they work or not is a process of experimentation. And that in a sense, the kind of line that becomes by the 19th century, what we would now call science. I mean, that, that we arrive at that through a process of, of, of testing other approaches to knowledge. Yeah, it's all about how systematic it is, right? Because experimentum in Latin just means experience. It just means something that that happens to you. Uh, And so this process of of experiment morphing into something that is a a discrete moment in time, it is something that you design, something that you carry out and you might do multiple times in order to check it. That's uh, something that happens gradually over time from this medieval idea that experiment is just an experience that you had that maybe happened to you rather than something that you did. So we can't really ever say one person invented experiment. It's an idea that evolved over time. But basically we could say, I mean, just to to kind of draw a line under it, we could say monks, yay for monks. Well, they're experiencing, (laughs) They're not the baddies. (laughs) I mean, the whole point point about uh, Copernicus, right, is that he is a sort of symptom of uh, an increase in knowledge that the universe is not operating as we want it to to do. Uh, And so astronomers over centuries noticed that the models of Ptolemy didn't quite match up to reality. It was just a kind of question of how content they were with the imperfection. And it's it's an increase in in experience, it's an increase in calculation, it's an increase in all the things that medieval people did that allows them to say, no, this isn't good enough, we need a better system. Uh, So it relies on that medieval practice, even if it takes a little bit longer for somebody to come up with an alternative that works better. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much. Um, and uh, and your book, The Light Ages, is great. I, I read it in proof and then I read it again yesterday to prepare for this and I enjoyed it just as much the second time as the first. So thank you. Thank you Seb. And, and, and buy it, guys, because it, it bears definitely a second reading. Uh, thanks so much, Seb. Thanks, everyone, to listening. We will be back soon with... What are we going to be doing? We don't know. We haven't decided yet. Something. Something. Yeah, we, we're, it's an experimental process. We, we, <laughs> yeah, we need to... Do. We need to work that out. Um, Thanks very much for listening. See you all soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot com.